If you have your Bibles handy, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 4. Before we dive in, let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as John prayed, we say a hearty amen that you would give us ears to hear. Father, your word is, is all we need for faith and life, and we thank you for it. As Dr. Gamble has said, it's a love letter to your church, and I pray that we would increasingly love it, that we would enjoy it, that we would listen to it. And I pray that now that you might be pleased to use me to expound on it for a time, that it would edify your people. It would bring you glory and honor. And so we do commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in Reformed circles, uh, I learned this very quickly when I joined the, at Springs Reformed Church back in the mid-80s, that uh, doctrine is very, very important. Um, and you have to have your doctrine right. Um, I remember Pastor Paul McCracken, if I said something a little incorrect, he, he would very gently and graciously line me back up and get me squared up away, you know. And so you pay attention to doctrine. And so orthodoxy matters to us. Um, and it mattered to the Reformers, and it mattered to the Scots, and it mattered to the Puritans. But it's interesting, when you read those men, you, you see that experience mattered too. They, they loved God, and they wanted to experience God. And, and they used that term experience or experiential, and actually they used another term experimental, which the meaning has shifted, but that's the idea. And so we're going to look at this passage here in, in a minute, and it is full of doctrine. There is good doctrine in it, but it's a very experiential passage. It has meant a lot to me, and I think it's probably meant a lot to many of you. And so referring back to one of my earlier sermons, this passage is very much like Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. That's this passage. We do want to experience God, God's love and understand it more and more. And we all long to grow in Christ and become more like him. Um, so let's listen to this and, and remember that this is God's words, brothers and sisters. Starting in chapter 4, verse 2 through verse 9. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So before we start, I want you to imagine the scenario. We're living in the ancient times. We're in a city, and a foreign king has come, and he's invaded the land. He's overrun the land with his army, and he's surrounding your city. And there are 180,000 troops outside the city. And there's horses, there are chariots. It, it's, a, it's a very scary thing. 
Inside the sea, things are running out. There aren't very many soldiers with weapons that can defend the city. Water is low. Food is even scarcer. And now a message from that other king has been delivered to your king. And this pagan king has the audacity to insult your king, the one and true God, Yahweh. And this invader has come with terms of peace. If you'll surrender, he says, and I mean absolute surrender, you'll have to surrender your homes and, and your fields and everything you've got, and we'll move you to a different land. And this pagan king is insulting your king. He's calling him a liar. He's trying to convince you not to believe your king. He wants you to come out of the city and surrender. What are you to do? What's he to do? Well, you're in the city of Jerusalem, and this foreign king is Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, the mightiest king on earth at that time. And your king is Hezekiah, the godly king of Judah. What will King Hezekiah do? Well, Hezekiah is not only afraid of Sennacherib, you put yourself in his shoes, you'll realize he's afraid of his people. Will his people betray him? Will they surrender and just hand the keys of the, the city and of the temple over to this foreign king? I can guarantee you Hezekiah had a lot of anxiety and he wasn't sleeping well at night. Hezekiah's story demonstrates one of the main principles in this passage and we'll, we'll see that. But before we dive in, I want to go over my outline of this passage just briefly. It's, if you've already glanced at it, it's a little irregular. Um, I showed it to my son, Buck, and he said, well, I think that might work, Dad. <laughs> so, but we're going to look at it. And part of it is I do just like to march through and look at all the verses and not miss anything. But I also didn't want to sort of put too much in there. I wanted you to have room to, to make a notes if you wanted to make notes. Um, and you'll notice, although we, we are looking at pat, the passage from verse 2 down through pat, uh, verse 9, I'm including verse 1 here. And the reason is it's a transitional verse. Linguists talk about it, verses, particularly in Paul, there are lots of transitional verses, and you can kind of tell when you've got a transitional verse. One publisher, like the ESV, will put it with chapter 4. You pick up a different version, and you'll see that it's actually with chapter 4 instead of 3. I think I misspoke. So when the publishers can't decide where it goes, it's a sign that it is transitional, that the author is actually pivoting from what he was talking about to the new thing. And that is actually what verse 1 is. And so... In a sense, there is some things that we need to consider there, um, and I don't want to completely just skip it, but we won't dive in hard. Um, I missed the big podium, I'll tell you. This is kind of small. Um, <clears throat> at least I'm not a guy that moves around a lot. Um, you know, in Paul's letters, there are places that uh, he does this frequently. And verse 1 is one of those. Um, and so as you look at it, you'll notice that uh, he said, calls them brothers. He calls them brothers all throughout this. And interesting, verse 2, he immediately addresses the two women. Um, so we know that brothers was the Greek term. Scholars agree that's how you address the church in Greek times, in the ancient of days there. But the, uh, the times are changed. And we say brothers and sisters. If I'm going to speak to all of you, I say brothers and sisters. So that's an equivalent language today is brothers and sisters. Um, but what sort of brothers and sisters were they? Well, the ESV says love. So the word is beloved. Um, and it also says immediately that they were longed for. It's the word miss. I missed you. He says that in chapter 1. I'm, I'm missing you. I miss you terribly. And then at the end of the verse, he says, beloved again. So he's packing all these terms, brother, beloved, miss, brother. He's packing all these in to one verse. And then the commentator, Peter T. O'Brien, says this. 
Paul commends them in some of the most affectionate and endearing language he ever uses in his letters. Read Paul's letters and find another place he speaks to a church this warmly. It's, it's remarkable. Paul considered the Philippian church very dear to himself. And one other commentator points out that the term beloved is the same, just like English. It's the same one when God spoke of his son. This is my beloved son. It's the same Greek word. It's not a different Greek word. The point is just simply this. He loved the Philippian church very much. But then notice he also calls them his joy and crown. So this is, you've heard this before from the pulpit, that it's a little victor's crown. You know, the little leaves that they put on after the Olympic Games. That, that doesn't mean quite as much to us. We might say today, yeah, you're, you're my joy and trophy or maybe my gold medal. That's the idea. He, he's, he's won this race in a sense. They, he, they are his, his crown jewels, as it were. And this isn't the big heavy diadem that the king wears, I should say. That is a different word. Um, and then he tells them to stand firm. But how? He says, thusly stand firm. So this, this, that's pointing back to chapter 3. If you want to know what he means by thusly, go back and read the end of chapter 3 there. Um, and then he says, how to stand firm in the Lord? He says, stand firm in the Lord. Excuse me. How to thusly stand? He says, stand firm in the Lord. And so for Paul, the union with Christ is central to his, his doctrines, to his theology. And you see that in the Lord. The three English words, two, English, two Greek words, you see that all through uh, Paul's writings. It's really a hard thing to translate because you just translate it into the language that we've been working in, in the Lord. What does it mean? Well, it is a packed word, and we'll look at some of what it means here in just a minute. And then, as I said, he, he addresses them as beloved again. So starting at verse 2, <clears throat> Paul addresses these two women by name. And... That should really strike you as odd. It, it, it does me, and it does the commentators, because reading through Paul's letters, he deals with a lot of interpersonal problems. He deals in Corinthians with a guy that they need to excommunicate, but he never names the guy. In fact, this is the only place that we know of, I think, that where there's a problem like this. Well, maybe one of the few places. He, this guy Demas was a problem who had left the faith, and he mentions him. But here these two women are, are named. But why here? What was the issue? We don't know. Paul says, I urge Euodia. I urge Syntyche. And so he repeats those two verbs. He doesn't just say urge these two ladies. He puts the verb in front of each of their names. It does two things. It shows his earnestness, and it shows that he was impartial. He wasn't taking sides. He's appealing to each of them individually. And, you know, commentators have a lot of things to say about these passages, but there are two that they basically agree on. Number one, this divide was a threat to the church, to the unity of the whole church. And the whole church already knew about it. It had ceased to be a private matter, and thus Paul dealt with it openly. And he also didn't take sides in it. Who were these women? Jumping down to verse 3, you glance down there, if you've still got your Bibles open, you'll see that Paul mentions that they contended at his side. And that's actually language of a fellow soldier. So you who've been deployed and know something about, um, or even a fireman, men on the, the line fighting fires with you, that's the idea. See, these women had stood with Paul. So these two women were prominent and important to Paul, and they were also important in the Philippian church. But what does Paul tell these two women to do? This is where it gets interesting. He says, agree in the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to agree in the Lord? Well, back in chapter 2, 
If you still have your Bibles open, you can look there. Chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 5, the same language appears in the Greek. There it is again. So he's actually referring back to these passages in chapter 4. In chapter 2, verse 2, the ESV says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's the same language. And then verse 5 reads in the ESV, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. A better way to actually translate that would be make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. So here in chapter 4, he's telling those two women, remember what I just told you back in chapter 2? That's what you need to be doing. You need to be taking on the humbling attitude that Christ had when he came to earth in the form of a man. He's telling them, in order for the church to have unity and peace, for you to find unity amongst yourselves, this is what you've got to do. This humble attitude of Christ is what they were needing. And you might recall in Matthew 18 that I preached on that Jesus brings a young child in among them. And he says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are like this small child. And humble yourself, he says. And then he goes on to talk about sin and repentance and forgiveness. But the point is that humility is essential for unity, for forgiveness, for repentance. Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus, Paul tells those ladies. There's much more that can be said about those two verses. I've actually heard a sermon on just those two verses, but that's just the introduction. That's just the context that we're going to look at the rest of these in. Um, We have to finish off here with verse 3, and it actually has a a rather enigmatic phrase in it, a a puzzling phrase that scholars don't really, cannot agree on, and it's, and it's it's not possible to fully know what it means. It's the word true yoke fellow. The ESV said true, true companion, I think, but the word is yoke fellow. Somebody that bears the yoke with you. And he calls on that person to help these women. Who was that person? We don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody living to knows, that's for sure. Um, there are a few men in the New Testament that scholars consider and weigh the odds. What's, the, what's it likely to be this person or that person? The problem is most of them can be dismissed. So what if it was Timothy? Well, we know where Timothy was. It probably wasn't Timothy, and so on. And so we can speculate who it was, but we really don't know who it was. But what's important is that Paul was confident that they would know who he was talking about. He didn't have to call him by name. He, he said that, and they, that he was confident that the church, the Philippian church, would know who he was talking about. And by dressing the man as he did, Paul gave this man the authority to step in and help those women. In other words, he didn't tell those ladies, ladies, you should ask my true yoke fellow to give you a hand. He doesn't say that. He says, my true yoke fellow, help them. And so with authoritatively, uh, excuse me, authoritatively, Paul inserted that man into that situation. We're going to settle this thing, and you're going to help him. And he could do that. He... He was an apostle and had apostolic authority. So what Paul needed was a close representative to insert himself. He couldn't be there, and he told that man to do it. And whoever it was, it was as if Paul was inserting himself. Paul trusted that man very much. Again, there's more that could be said, but we're going to go on. So here we go. Next next point, number two. Looking at verse 4, what's the first thing that Paul says? Paul says, rejoice. And, you know, when you sit down and read Philippians clear through in one sitting, and it won't take long to do that, you see that the word joy or rejoice comes up over and over again. 
In fact, the root word appears 16 times in this short letter. This is a theme of Philippians, and I'm sure you've all heard that. So here Paul is commanding it again, rejoice, but he doesn't just say it once in this verse. He says it twice. I'll say it again, rejoice. Paul is no longer speaking to just the two women, I should point out. He's, the commentators agree. He's turned now back and he's speaking to the whole church. Rejoice, which includes those two women. But it's interesting. There are two questions that remain. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And what does it mean always? I mean, always means always, but let's have a look at what those mean. The term, the phrase in the Lord is a very short, it's two words in the Greek. Um, it's deep and rich. And it's very Pauline. By, by the phrase that those two words Paul means are union with Christ. We are in the Lord. But it has other meanings too. And you, we could actually translate this slightly different here. And it would be correct. It would not be incorrect. Rejoice because of the Lord. You could say that. That would not be incorrect when you use the term in the Lord there. Or you could say rejoice over what the Lord has done. But essentially, Paul is saying rejoice because you are united to the Lord. And that is everything for him. You are one with Christ. Now, what does always mean? Well, the fact that Paul commands us to have joy, and that joy is in the Lord, necessarily means that it is happening. what is happening around us, our circumstances, is not what gives us joy. Those were difficult times for Paul, actually. He was in prison. Well, he was imprisoned, I should say. He was under house arrest in Rome, probably. That's what scholars largely agree on. We know that he was under arrest. He mentions that in this letter more than once. And the Philippians were a small church. They weren't a huge church, and they were in this Roman colony. Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were not liked. And if you doubt me, this afternoon have a look at Acts chapter 16 and just see how well the Christians were liked in Philippi. But Calvin says this about the, the command always. The sum then is this, that come what may, believers having the Lord standing on their side have amply sufficient ground for joy. From this command we learn that uh, Christians' joys must be based in Christ. That's, that's what we're getting from this. And you know the New Testament uses both the words joy and happy and you've probably heard sermons like I have that we're commanded to be joyful and not to be happy. Well, there's a problem with that. The New Testament uses both words and in fact the beatitudes blessed is he, you know, blessed are you poor in spirit, the poor in spirit. The problem is that can be translated validly happy is the one who is poor in spirit. So, it's not a difference between happy and joy. The difference is where we get our joy or happiness. That's the difference. That's, that's the crux of this thing. Our joy is to be in the Lord. And so it can be present always. We can have joy always. The commentator O'Brien says, This ongoing rejoicing cannot be based upon or grounded in the particular circumstances of the readers. That's, that's not what it's based on. He goes on to say that what Paul is teaching us is this. Keep on rejoicing in the Lord at all times, regardless of what may come upon you. Now that's hard to do. It is hard to do, isn't it? Who of us at some point hasn't had such heavy things on their heart, things in their life, grief, sadness, a feeling guilt from sin or something, that you don't feel like coming to worship? I certainly have. But I knew that there was one place I needed to be more than anywhere else, and that was right here. Rejoicing and worshiping God. 
reveling in His love and all He has done for us. Rejoice. doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. We have an example of this again in chapter 16 of Acts. Um, you read that chapter, you see that Paul and Silas were in Philippi, and a riot started. They were grabbed. Um, the mob attacked them. They were arrested by city officials. They were stripped, so they were publicly humiliated, having their clothes stripped off, at least down to their skivvies probably. And uh, then they were beat with rods and thrown into jail. So much for the new church plant Paul was working on there in his ministry in Philippi. There goes that, it feels like. It's a wash. But in fact, you, when you get to verse 25 in chapter 16, you see that it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. By the way, those hymns were psalms. So it's clear. You look at Paul and Silas at that situation, and you know that, that our joy is not our circumstance. They were in a bad way. They, they were sitting there in a lot of pain and discomfort. I mean, I don't think any of us have been beat by rods like these guys were. Spanked by our parents, maybe. That was bad enough, maybe. But these guys couldn't sleep. It says there they were at midnight. Most of us probably like to sleep at midnight. They couldn't sleep. They hurt too much. But they were rejoicing in the Lord. And the cool part is it says the other prisoners were listening. Well, Brian calls the phrase, in the Lord, the governing factor in the exhortation. That's the key. That's, that's what the crux of this thing is. This isn't a call like the world's call, like you've heard, don't worry, be happy. That's not what this is. It's a call to remember what the Lord Jesus has done, to remember that you are united to him. And it is a call to focus on those things and to rejoice. The Lord Jesus is both our ground, or that is our basis for rejoicing, and he's also our object of worship. That's He is the one we come to worship. And Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I want to say one more thing about rejoicing in the Lord always. Always rejoicing in the Lord was of great significance to Paul. In fact, it's a Christian's distinguishing mark and characteristic of the kingdom of God. Sinclair Ferguson, so the women studied that book. I forget if the men have studied that book or not. His, his commentary on the book of Philippians. But he said in there that love, like joy, is something we can decide to do. Excuse me, I said that backwards. That joy is like love and that we can decide to do that, right? We're, we're commanded to love our neighbors and we're commanded here to be joyful. It's a, it's a Christian trait. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Looking down at verse 5 now, what does this mean? In some ways it's not that hard to understand, but it is. there are a couple of things that are a little bit puzzling if you dwell on it very much and think about it. It says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Some translations translate that word graciousness as gentleness. I think the ESV said reasonableness. It has a variety of, of ways that it can be translated. Calvin says that the word is best understood this way, to endure all things with equanimity. To endure all things with equanimity. This would imply that Paul is speaking of our graciousness to unbelievers, actually. And it actually, the language, commentators agree, when Paul speaks like this, he's usually speaking to those outside the church. That's not to say that we don't apply it to each other within the church. I, I think we do. But he is particularly saying to those outside the church. 
Another commentator suggests that this word gentleness is speaking of a humble, patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice, trusting God in spite of it all. So you see it actually fits very well with what he's just been saying. And the same commentator goes on to say this, Within the New Testament, it is Christ who preeminently displayed this gentleness. So in Paul's urging the Philippians to let their gentleness be evident, the apostle wants them to display a Christ-like character. And this may involve them in the patient bearing of abuse and persecution. But because Paul says, make your graciousness and gentleness be known to everyone, it does include both believers and non-believers, those outside the church. Those who would harm us, those who would persecute us. The last piece of this verse says the Lord is near. I mean, that seems a simple thing to understand, but the word near in Greek and English can mean two things. So it could mean somebody standing right by me, Chad's pretty near me, right? Or it could actually mean in time. And commentators, once again, again can't agree on what it means. Which, which is he speaking of? If it means close in time, um, what Paul is saying is something like what uh, James said in, in chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So that's what that would mean. He's speaking of an eschatological meaning, the end times. The Lord is coming. And so if he means that, he, what is, paraphrasing it, you could say that Paul is saying, hang in there, be gentle or gracious to everyone because the Lord is coming to vindicate you. And we are called to live expectantly. Jesus speaks of that a lot. And this is what his perspective would be communicating, if that's what it means. If it means spatially, that is, the Lord is near, he's beside you, then that would be like what we just sang in Psalm 145, verse 18. It says, the Lord is near to all that call upon him. Which is it? Don't know. Can't know for sure. There's not enough context to know. But I think it doesn't really matter. Why? Because both of them are legitimate bases for us to be able to let our gentleness be known to everyone. Whether it's someone, you know, that he's coming again at some point, and, and hopefully soon, or if he's actually with us and, 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 and dwells with us. The point is that, that God is near. Looking now at verse 6, we see two more quick commands. Um, and really, I would argue that it's just one command. It's sort of two sides of the same coin. The first is worry or be anxious about nothing. That's how it's worded in the Greek. Be anxious about nothing. Or we would actually say, more likely say today, don't worry about anything. That's, that's how we would say it in, in, in vernacular English today, I think. But what's striking is, here for the first time, Paul uses a conjunction. As you're reading through this, he hasn't used the word and between sentences or any of the other typical Greek conjunctions. But all of a sudden here he sticks in the word but, and it's the strong word but. And I think it's because he's strongly linking the two together. They're contrasting them. They're two sides of the same coin. What, what is the contrast? The contrast is don't worry about anything, but instead in everything pray. And so Paul says, do not worry about anything, but instead in everything, by prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. The contrast is clear. The corrective for being anxious about things is to pray about them. As already mentioned, the Philippians had reason to be anxious. And 
You can look back in chapter 1 and you see some of that, for example, in verses 28 and 29. They were despised Christians in that Roman city, and they had reasons to be anxious. And all of us have plenty of things in our lives on a regular basis that give us anxiety. And certainly the conflict of these two women in the church gave the church a lot of anxiety, might have given Paul anxiety. I mean, the fact that he had to write about it was on his heart. And all of us know how hard it is to, to not fear, to not feel anxiety. It's extremely difficult. So these verses are invaluable to us as Christians in our, in our experiential lives with Christ. We have to believe them and heed them. And I can't just tell you, and Paul didn't just say, don't worry, and just stop there. He said, don't worry. He said, pray. So I'm glad Keith Mann is here. He can correct me later. Um, he used to joke about if you're going to worry about something, this is the way you've got to do it. You've got to pick something that you cannot affect at all. You can't change it in any way, shape, or form. And if that's the case, you'll be able to get a good worry going and stay up half the night worrying about it, and your bones will ache because of the worry. If, if you can take care of it, you're not going to find anything to worry about. You can get up and take care of it. But, you know, that we have all experienced, and it's, it's a drag. It's frankly a drag to be tied up in knots like that, isn't it? And what's the solution? Paul says, pray. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, in his commentary on the Shorter Catechism, says this. The root of covetousness is distrust of God's providence. Faith believes that God will provide, that he who feeds the birds will feed his children, that he who clothes the lilies will clothe his lambs, and thus faith overcomes the world. Faith is the cure of care. It not only purifies the heart, but satisfies it. It makes God our portion, and in him we have enough. Thus Thomas Watson is saying that we are anxious, not infrequently because of our sin of coveting. What are we coveting often in those cases? We're coveting a different situation. God has providentially put us in a certain situation, and we are coveting. We are desiring to get out of that situation, whatever it may be. But God, the eternal God, has ordained us to be in that particular situation. And that's important to remember. Thomas Watson refers to faith in that. He, he says this is, excuse me, and I say we know this, that faith is closely linked to prayer, isn't it? And Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, tells the parable of the, the, uh, the persistent widow who goes to see the judge. What is Jesus teaching there? He's teaching us how earnestly we should pray. Pray and not give up, he says. But he finishes that parable with a rhetorical question. And it's interesting, often Jesus, is, Jesus does that, finishes with some kind of statement that seems almost out of place. And if you miss the meaning of that, you miss the meaning of the parable. And what is the rhetorical question that he finishes with? He says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Faith is inextricably tied to our prayers. Prayer is a means of grace and is vital to our survival. Praying is an act of faith. Often when Paul wants to get a point across now, you can see he will string together a list of synonyms, and that's what he's done here. It's a little bit like reading the Amplified Bible, if any of you have seen that. Commentators spend a lot of time discussing what each individual word means, and there's, there's, there's good sense in that. The first word, prayer, is the most general term for prayer, used all throughout the New Testament. The next word means supplication or petition. It has a slightly more limited usage in the New Testament. 
The lexicon defines it as an urgent request to make to meet a need exclusively directed to God. The third is the word request, which suggests specific specific things. It's your prayer list. But instead of focusing on those small details, and you can go into it far deeper, uh, you read, read, read a good commentary and you will see they, can, they spend multiple pages in discussing what each of these words means. I suggest when Paul strings those together, it's like painting a picture. He, it's like looking at the Colorado landscape that is a forest in the mountains where you might see some aspen and spruce or pine or whatever. And instead of getting hung up on each individual thing, enjoy the beauty of it. And so Paul throws out all his many synonyms right there, as he thought of at the time, and says, pray. That's what he's saying, pray. Let's not focus on the details of the tree, but just realize that he is saying that combined beauty is that we can pray, that we can come and pray. Whatever kind of prayer it is, pray. But how hard it is to pray when you're drowning under a sea of anxiety and worry and other things that are going on in your life. I mean, we all have that, whether it's a relationship, stress at work, or neighbor, or stress in your job, in the present economy. Some of you might be wondering if you're going to be able to make ends meet. And when you're stressed out like that, when you're feeling that anxiety, how hard it is to pray, it seems like. And I mean, truly cast your cares on God and turn them over to Him. When you feel overwhelmingly anxious, it is hard, it is impossible. And interestingly, here I am, the last several weeks, I've been studying this passage, thinking about this passage. And, and I was reading my Bible in the morning, and I was having a hard time concentrating and actually reading the words. I had to start over two or three times because the words were just running by my eyes and not going into my head. And I realized what I was feeling anxious about. And I felt a little bit rebuked because I'm studying this passage. So I turned back to this passage and I read it. And I put it to use. I prayed and cast that concern to, to God. And... It is the medicine we need. It's hard to do. But isn't it the case that the stronger the medicine is, the worse it tastes? The harder it is to stomach? And so here you are feeling anxious, and your mind is distracted with all kinds of things. The one thing you need to do is stop worrying and pray. And that's, that's one coin, two sides of the same coin. So question, are we to bring these anxieties to God because he doesn't know about them? Notice what it says there. It says, the Greek word is make known. If you make known something to somebody, if I make something known to David, he didn't know it. That's not what this means, though, is it? We know that from all of Scripture that God is omniscient. He knows it all. In fact, he knows and understands these things better than we do. So when we pray, bringing our concerns to God... We are demonstrating our utter and complete reliance and dependence upon him, just like a small child. When a small child asks mom or daddy for some help, it's because they know they can't do it. And that's what we're called to do. That's why Jesus says we need to be like children. We need to depend on the Lord. And the Apostle Peter, over in his letter, in 1 Peter 5, 7, tells us the same thing. You know, the language that Jackie and I have spent our lives working in doesn't have the word pray. So what do you do? Well, the translation team, we, we decided to use the word entrust. And so what, is that, what does that do? Well, I suggest it communicates very powerfully. So if I tell one of our mother tongue translators that I'm praying for her, the way I say it in her language is, I am entrusting you to the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul is calling us to do. 
So Paul's remedy for anxiety and worry is to pray. And yet it isn't just to pray. It's to pray with thanksgiving. What does it mean to pray with thanksgiving? Well, I suggest it just simply means thanking him in your prayers as you pray. And Paul commands that elsewhere. One example is Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 and 17. He says the same thing. And isn't giving thanks to God the attribute? In fact, it's a very biblical and Christian thing to do. That's why our best, in my opinion, our best American holiday is actually Thanksgiving. But it's the most neglected, isn't it? Compare how the, the Americans look at Halloween compared to Thanksgiving. I mean, there are Halloween things already being put up. There was a new Halloween store opened up over near me. I couldn't believe it. But you don't see a Thanksgiving store open up anywhere. But what's funny to me is more and more in secular society, I hear people saying, I am so thankful for such and such. Or I'm so blessed because of such and such. And I've wondered when they say that. Do they even know who they're talking about? Who, who are they thankful to? Well, you know, Romans chapter 1, 20, verse 21 says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. They don't know who they're thankful for. They've just somehow adopted Christian language. It sounds good, I guess. I don't know. In Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul calls the unsaved ungrateful. So we talk about non-believers, unbelievers, or the unsaved. We could say ungrateful, the ungrateful. It's a synonym. We're talking about the ungodly, those who are not saved. They are not grateful. But we know the one in whom we are, must give thanks, don't we? We are called to be grateful people. And you know the story in, in Luke chapter 17 where there were 10 lepers and Jesus heals these guys. And one of them, a Samaritan, turns and comes back to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? We're not 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? Jesus then tells him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. That man not only was healed physically and cleansed physically, but he was also spiritually healed and cleansed. And we are to be like him. We are to be grateful. But when you are feeling anxious about something, what are you supposed to give thanks about? Most of us don't feel like there's anything to be grateful at all. I mean, we're just, we're just overwhelmed by whatever this anxiety is, is that's on us. Well, Paul tells us, it's everything. You're supposed to be thankful for everything. What does that mean? Well, thank God for who he is. You can start there. Thank him for what the Lord Jesus has done. Thank him for our, your salvation. Thomas Watson says this, Christ's blood has quenched the fire of God's wrath for you. Because of the blood of Jesus, we will not be thrown into the lake of fire. If that doesn't get you on your knees and thank God, then maybe you need to reexamine your heart. We have much to be thankful for. And I contend we should be thankful for our brothers and sisters, one another sitting here. We can be thankful for our spouses and our children. Thankful for new grandbabies. There's much to be thankful for. And we can thank Him for the way He's answered prayers in the past. And that's really helpful to do. But you have to concentrate. When you are feeling anxious, you have to think hard. Just like the Old Testament saints, we are forgetful. I mean, we can forget amazing things that just happened a few months ago. And they just seem to be out of our mind. When you're feeling anxious, focus on those and thank Him for those. 
But I would also suggest that we need to thank him for the circumstances that we're in right now. And that's not any fun. I, I don't want to be in this situation. I'm coveting a different situation, but rather we need to be thankful for this situation. It's an amazing opportunity that he has providentially given you. When you feel helpless and overwhelmed, when you cannot take care of the matter yourself, thank your Heavenly Father for this opportunity. If you think hard and review God's faithfulness to you and to your people and to the church and thank him for it, you will be changed. It's a promise. But let me say, it is very difficult to be thankful. It is hard to give thanks when you're all twisted up in knots. I know that. I've experienced it. But we're commanded to do it. So do it. The last part of this verse says that we are to make our prayers known to God. There is more than one way to say to God in Greek. This way it says has the idea of before him, coming in before him. So the images are coming into his presence, into his throne room. There he is, the king, seated on the throne. And we come in as his subjects and we stand before the king who is seated, or we even bow. It's a physical response of acknowledgement of who we are before the king. And you know, that's why reformed people through the ages have stood for prayer, as John had us do this morning. It's a, it's a physical posture of saying, you're the king, we're your subjects. So at this point, I want to turn back to the Hezekiah story. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, he's about to overrun the place. And if they don't surrender, he's going to kill them all. In 2 Kings chapter 19, that's a good chapter to read, 2 Kings chapter 19. In verse 1, Hezekiah has just heard the report of some messengers. And his response to those discouraging words are striking. He humbles himself in sackcloth and ashes. And he goes into the temple. He took his prayers into God's throne room. And then down in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, so 14 verses later, Hezekiah has received a letter from Sennacherib, uh, from Sennacherib's messenger. And Hezekiah took that letter, and it's really cool. He went into the temple, and he rolled that thing out and presented it to the Lord. He laid that letter out before the Lord. He spread out his anxieties in front of God. What did he do? He prayed. But how did he pray? Look at chapter 19 of 2 Kings. He began his prayer with worship. That's how he began. And that's what we're supposed to do. Now verse 7 is the promise. It says, if you do this, Paul gives us a promise. All the commentators, I was telling John as we walked in, this was striking to me. Every commentator I looked at, and I looked at a wide range, Anglican, Evangelical, Calvin, I don't care who you look at, they all agree that the language of this is verse 7 is the result of verse 6. So Paul is essentially saying, if you will take the matters of anxiety to the Lord, your matters, bringing them before his throne of grace, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's a promise. <coughs> Calvin rephrases this verse and says, the peace of God will guard you so as to prevent you from turning back from God in wicked thoughts or desires. And theologians often raise good questions that us regular folks don't even think of. One of those is, what is the peace of God? And to me, why would you ask that? Well, the problem is it's a genitive phrase or possessive, we would say in English, and it can be ambiguous. One meaning is simply that it is the peace that God owns, that he dwells in, that is his peace. And the other is the peace that God gives. And so they debate over this and, and such, but I say, why are you debating it? It's one and the same. 
God takes his peace that he lives in, that is his peace, and he gives it to us. There's, there's, no, there's no ambiguity to me. It is God's peace. The peace of God, it says, is a superlative peace. But what, you, what would you expect? Because it's his peace. It is the best there is. It couldn't be any less. We're told that this peace passes understanding. This is a peace that the world has no part in. They can't experience it. They don't understand it. They cannot comprehend it. And how could they? If you were not knowing the one who gives that peace, you can't know it. But, but what about us? What if we are in such an anxious situation? Paul and Silas were, had just been beaten. We're in prison. Refer back to the book of Job. Job was it in a bad way. Thankfully, I think none of us will ever experience losing everything like Job did. Can we have peace in those situations? Yes, we can. Absolutely. And notice, this is important. The peace here, what is peace? It's the opposite of anxiety. That's how Paul uses it. Anxiety and peace. That's the opposite, the opposite thing. When we are anxious, God's superlative peace is what we need. The other question theologians ask is, has to do with guard. What does it mean to guard our hearts and minds? Well, just like in Eng the English word, it can have a military sense. Um, like soldiers guarding gates or the camp or whatever. So think of this as concretely. God's peace is like a solid wall that protects us with soldiers on the wall to defend us. In fact, O'Brien excuse me, points out that since the city of Philippi was guarded by a Roman garrison at the time, it was a Roman colony, so they got the garrison there, the metaphor would have been easily understood and appreciated by the readers. Another commentator picking up that same idea on the word guards says it probably was a real wordplay. Paul was actually playing with words here because the Roman garrison in Philippi was there to guard the Pax Romana, the famous Roman peace. The guards were there to protect the peace. But here, the peace guards us. Often in the Bible, the term heart is the center of emotions or desires. It's also where people think. And if you poses your look back at Mark chapter 2, verse 6, where the scribes are sitting there, as Jesus is healing this man that's been lowered to the roof. And they're thinking in their hearts is what it says. They're thinking bad thoughts about Jesus in their hearts. In, in Paul's writings, the term mind carries the sense of thought, mind, purpose, plot, this sort of thing. So O'Brien suggests by putting those two terms together, it refers to the whole inner life of a person. Their feeling, their thinking, their willing. And so God's peace is guarding us and keeping us because we are vulnerable to attack from all kinds of pernicious influence on, on our hearts and minds. And there it is again in the final phrase of this verse, in Christ Jesus. There it is. This is Pauline. Those of us who are united in Christ, to Christ by faith, will have our hearts and minds guarded. This is the key, in fact, to receiving God's peace. It isn't so much about what we do, but it's our union with Christ that matters. So brothers and sisters, we have no pastor. We have no building. But we have God, our Father, and His Son, the Lord Jesus. And if we take our anxieties to Him, and we give Him thanks for the opportunity, this opportunity to trust in Him, He will guard our hearts and minds with His peace. 
In fact, an earthly pastor is just an under-shepherd. We still have our primary shepherd. We haven't lost him. And he will not leave us. Trust him. And his peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Now, verse 8 and 9. We'll finish up quickly. Hopefully we'll be out of here before 1130. Um, verse 8 begins with the word finally. And theologians twist themselves in knots over this word. The problem with the things that they say um, doesn't seem to take into account really how the word is used. I, I looked up every instance in, in Paul's writings to just see how Paul was using it. Um, so some people say that he's actually picking up on earlier thoughts that he had that he didn't quite finish. Oh, and now back to something else. And what they're saying is this is a new paragraph, has nothing to do with what he's just saying. Other people said, oh yeah, here begins the end of the letter. Um, but I think they're, they're ignoring what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, right there in the middle of the letter. So what's he doing there? That's exactly the same word. So the problem is, if you look it up in a lexicon, in the, the best Greek lexicon, you will see that the word actually means in addition, in addition to the, the remaining matter, the other matter, that idea. And when I sit down and read chapter 4 straight through, it seems very clear to me that this paragraph goes with what he's just been saying, and I hope to demonstrate that. So... Another matter, the remaining matter about what I've just been saying is what Paul is saying there. In a very real sense, you see, what Paul has just been saying above are actions. They're not sort of actions like swinging a hammer or something like that, but he says rejoice, that your graciousness be known. And the third command is don't worry, instead pray with thanksgiving. Those are sort of the actions, the things that we are to do. And then this list is our thoughts. So he's covering both, things that we're to do and things about how we are to think. So I'd like to reword it. It says, in addition, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. And you see, using the word in, in addition to, you can see that it really does fit with it. But I, there's more to say about that. But first, I do want to point out again, here's a whole string of words. Are these strict synonyms? No, they're not. But when Paul does this, take a step back and see the whole picture. You know, it's a worthwhile exer exercise, just like the commentators do, to dig into each word, to understand what each word is saying. Some of them are actually a bit challenging to, to translate. Um, but there's this parallel structure where he's throwing these very similar words all together. And he wants us to see the big picture. And that is what he wants us to fill our minds with. In contrast, all of us at times have seen ads on TV or heard them on a radio or something. Perhaps we watched a sketchy movie or a TV program, and those things fill our minds. Maybe we didn't choose to watch the ad or hear it on the radio, but there it is, and it's in our head. And a long time ago, I learned I can't watch movies on Saturday night, even if it's a good movie. Why? Because I'm sitting where you are thinking of that movie the night before and not thinking about what the pastor is saying. And so we have to be careful what we fill our minds with. Because if we fill it with the wrong things, intentionally or unintentionally, it, it has adverse effects and it's so disappointing. But there's another striking contrast which is prevalent in this world today, isn't there? Meditation. And I don't mean Christian meditation, where you meditate on the scriptures, on, on, on the word of God, and you pray. Rather, I mean transcendental meditation. New age or Eastern thinking teaches that we must empty our minds. 
you can look on the internet. It's just, it's all over the place. There are techniques and things you need to do in order to facilitate this. You need to empty your mind. And if you do, supposedly healing, things will happen. It's like a balm against worry and anxiety. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We're not to empty our minds. Instead, we're to fill our minds with Christ. We're to reflect on what He has done for us. We're to remember what He's done in us and what He's doing through us. We're to thank Him for those things. The New Agers are right in that we should take our minds off what's causing worry, but they're wrong in that we should empty our minds. And isn't it the case often with a lie or false teaching that there's a grain of truth in it? Instead, think on Christ. In fact, He is the one who fulfills those eight items in that list. But commentators are also suggest, and I think they're right, that this is actually related back to the two women. How? Well, these two women were not supposed to, they were not only to have the mind of Christ, which really does cover everything, but, and humble themselves, seeking peace, but they were to think on these things in each other. You see, if they had been practicing this already, if they'd been looking for the good and true and right and pure things in each other, they would not have been mentioned in Paul's letter. And you know, I'm ashamed to say it, but more often than not, that's what I do. I look for the negative things. I look for the negative things in the situation or in my brothers and sisters, and it's a shameful thing. And here I'm commanded not to do that. Instead, to look at my brothers and sisters and look for what's true and right and just and pure in that whole list of eight things. And if we do that, if we focus on those things in each of us, each of us have that. Each of us has Christ in us. I can focus on that if nothing else. He or she is my brother or sister in Christ, and that is a good thing. So let's focus on those things that are honorable and right and pure in one another. Sinclair Ferguson says, A mind full of these things will leave little room for anxiety, producing peace-disrupting and joy-destroying thoughts. I'm going to read that again. It is such a contrast to what the world would teach us. We fill our minds with these things. He says, a mind full of these will leave little room for anxiety-producing, peace-disrupting, and joy-destroying thoughts. In verse 9, Paul says one more, has one more command for us. He says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And he said that back up in chapter 3, verse 17, if you, if you recall. Up in verse 17, the previous chapter, he says, Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. This idea of imitating him, Paul mentions eight times in his different letters. Paul taught them. They heard his teaching. He acted these things out for them. He was sitting in prison. He was acting it out for them. And they saw it. Paul was not perfect. He says that back in verse uh, 12 of chapter 3, that he wasn't perfect yet. He's not there. Not when he wrote it. He is now. But the principle is we are to imitate our fathers in the faith. I jokingly say, when I grow up, I want to be Bob Mann. He's a man that I have imitated or desired to imitate. And that's what we're to do. They knew Paul. We don't know Paul. But we can see Paul here, and we can see it in one another. And at the end of verse 9, Paul gives us one more promise. The God of peace will be with you. This is a great promise. Jesus tells his disciples at the very end of Matthew's gospel, right, at the end of the Great Commission, that I will be with you to the end of the age. We know that the God of peace is with us. If we are in Christ, he is with us. 
Thus, one commentator pointed out that we need to be careful not to be trite when we pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord be with him. It can be kind of a trite prayer, really, if we're not careful. If that person is in Christ, they already have God, the God of peace with them. So what we need to pray is this, the commentator suggests, Lord, allow them to know that you are with them. You are with them. Make them aware of it. A little bit like, um, I forgot which prophet, Elijah, Elisha, I think Elisha's right, and they were in that city. And what, is, what did that prophet pray? Not that he would rescue him, that he would open the, that, that his servant's eyes, that he could see. And when his eyes were open, he sees the armies of God surrounding the city. That's what we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. We need to pray that they will experience God's presence. And yet I want to balance this. You see, the broader teaching of Scripture is that the kingdom is not merit-based. It's, it's not on the things that we do. If you do X, Y, and Z, um, God will do these things for you. That's not the way it works, actually. And yet, that's what it seems like Paul is saying here, isn't it? Well, I think the important thing to remember is that's not the exact way it is in the kingdom. God requires us to obey Him. He teaches us that His blessing comes with obedience. There are means of grace in his kingdom. That is to say, if we put ourselves in the pathway of receiving grace, we will receive grace. It is like a river through a dry land, like uh, Isaiah 55.1. If you want to drink of water, you're in a dry land, you've got to come to the river. If you want to take a swim, you've got to come to the river. If you want to wash your clothes, you've got to come to the river. Come. That's what he calls us to do. You're not going to get a drink out in the middle of the desert. And if we come, it's free for the taking, but we must come. And that's the way God's promises work. That's what it means to that, of, when we speak of means of grace. Thus, why wouldn't we as God's people want to come and drink? Is there any better place to be than here in worship morning and evening? Pastor Micah said the very same thing last week. This is a great place to be. In the same way, do you want to know God and have his peace? Do you want the God of, to be aware of the God of peace? Do you want to experience his presence? Well, Paul told us how to do it. So in conclusion, just want to review briefly that the Philippian church had much that was right. When you read the Corinthians, it's kind of a drag. It's, it's kind of hard to read. It might look a little too much like us. But Philippians, you always feel like, yeah, those guys got a lot of things right. They, they frequently supported Paul in his missionary work. He thanks him in, other le in, in this letter, and he mentions them in, in, in we, excuse me, we see it in the book of Acts. They also sent people to visit him, which he mentions in other letters. But they had conflict. They had conflict between two important women in the church, and it was causing such a division and rift that Paul had to write a letter and mention their names. Wouldn't that be a drag? For Paul to have mentioned your name, and 2,000 years later, we're still reading about the conflict you had. To me, that's a real drag. But it shows how serious it was. From Philippians chapter 1, we know that there were lots of external pressures on, on the church. But they also had these internal pressures, and all of them were causing anxiety. The internal pressures causing division. But what does Paul command them to do? He says, rejoice. Be full of joy. You are united to Christ. There's a lot of doctrine tied up in those words. But there's great experience, too. Paul applies that doctrine. Our union with Christ, our Lord, is to give us joy. You can have real joy. We don't have to be stuffy Presbyterians. We can be joyful Presbyterians. 
So you might have things in your life causing such much sadness or stress or so on, but you can have joy in the Lord even in the midst of that. And whatever situ situation you are in, you are to be considerate or gracious or gentle. The word can be translated several ways to everyone. And why? The Lord is near. So if you're feeling anxious, if you have a matter you find yourself thinking about and you can't get out of your mind and it gives you anxiety, stop worrying, Paul tells us, and pray. <coughs> Tell God what you need and give him thanks for who he is, for what he has done, for what he is doing. If you do this, God's peace will guard your hearts and minds because you are united to Christ Jesus. And finally, this is really finally, whether you need to fill your mind with things of Christ or whether you need to look for what is true, the honorable, the right, the pure, and so on in your brother or sister, focus your mind on these things. That's what we're to fill our minds with. I like what the New Living Translation says. It uses the verb fix. Fix your thoughts on these things. Grab onto it. Don't let it go. Don't let the negative, the evil, the lies of the enemy, or whatever it is, push those good thoughts out of your mind. Don't let it happen. Fix your mind on them. Look for them. The God of peace is with you, and he will be with you. In fact, you will experience him and his love. You will know his peace. And someday, that is all that will fill your hearts and minds. So I have to say it one more time. Taste and see the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, our prayer is that you would make us a joyful people. Father, it is so easy for us, caught up in the things of this world, the stressful things that come upon us, and we have things pretty easy compared to many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and other parts of history. So I pray that you would enable us to say, as Habakkuk prayed, as he said, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet we will, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will be joyful in, our, in God our Savior. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to do that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.